And I went to do um, the premiere and I was so inspired by the film. I said to my cameraman, I'm going to take my kit off and do a naked piece to camera. Um, and then I rang the office and I said, hey, guess what, guys? I'm going to do a naked piece to camera. The PR people said, oh, wow, nobody's thought of that. But I stood on the table at the premiere behind a hedge and I took my top down and I said to my cameraman, can you see my boobs? And he said, no, move to the left a bit. So I did my piece. I think I basically said something like, um, uh, you've got to take your hat off to the assembled cast, although you might find yourself taking everything else off as well. Sue and BBC News in London's West End. And it was great, the reaction I got when the piece went out, and it certainly got me noticed. So the reason I did it, I also did a safety piece in case they found it offensive. It wasn't offensive. Um, but the reason I did it was, I think now and again in life, you have to take a calculated risk. And that was mine. And I thought... It was something that got me noticed. It was something I thought was inspirational and funny, and um, it didn't offend anybody. So if that's the highlight of my broadcasting career, I'm very proud of it. Hello, and welcome to Freelance Pod. My name's Chandrika Chakrabarti, and I'll be your host. Freelance Pod is all about how the internet has revolutionized work. Each week, I'll speak to someone working in a creative field and ask them, how their industry has moved from an analogue to a digital age, or how the internet has invented their job. If you like what we're talking about in the podcast, please do get involved on social. You can find Freelance Pod on Instagram as at FreelancePod, on Twitter as at Freelance underscore pod underscore. There's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod, and you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. You've heard a bit from this week's guest on the last episode, which was the International Women's Day compilation. So our guest is Sue Llewellyn, who is a social media trainer, content strategist, ex-BBC TV news journalist. She worked there 15 years and um, Sue has been training people at the BBC in using social media. And um, her insight into how social media has changed journalism and to a certain extent the world and how we see each other is really interesting to hear. Also, she has some great tales from her career involving um, some risque stuff she got up to at the Calendar Girls premiere. I will say no more. <laughs> You've heard a bit about that already in the cold open. She has some really, really great views on how men and women are treated differently as we age. And um, I, just, I just like the wedding cake bit. You'll know what I mean when you get there. I don't think I need to do any more introducing. Sue is a brilliant storyteller in her own right and I will let her speak for herself. I've trained all sorts of um, different kind of clients. A lot of the people I train are media media types, journalists and things like that, but I've also trained uh, sports people including Olympic athletes and the England football team when they were much younger. So when they're in the under-21s, under-19s and under-17s, I went to do social media training with them. And part of that was to tell them what they need to know about social media, the kind of what you should do, but also what you shouldn't do. Um, because obviously when you're you're starting off, you know, young footballers are going to get an awful lot of attention. So um, the idea was really to prepare them for the kind of onslaught that you get when you're on social media. 
ah, oh, that's confidential. I shouldn't, I shouldn't give her any names. What I will say, though, is I was really struck by what an incredible team they were and how nice they all were um, and how sort of passionate and supportive they were. And I'm not surprised that they did so well uh, in the World Cup as a team. And the team sort of spirit really shows through. One of the things I would suggest to people um, when you're talking about what you should put on social media and what you should talk about is to be supportive of your team and to be uh, generous in your praise of others. So it's it's that's one of the easy things to do is to be nice to people. And that kind of generosity of spirit really looks good, sounds good on social media and also makes you feel good. So I think part of it was, you know, so celebrate other people's victories, you know, give praise where praise is due and be nice to each other. One of the difficulties that uh, sports people have, particularly um, more young male, you know, rather than female sports people, is the banter. I think banter is a really dangerous thing because on social, you can't see somebody's face. You can't see their reactions. You can't see that sort of nudging or joshing or those kind of relationships. So I think banter is, you know, it's a really dangerous thing to do on social media. A bit like sarcasm. You can't really, you know, hear sarcasm, but it just looks like you're being nasty. So I think banter and sarcasm uh, are two things you've got to be super careful with. So if that's your thing with your mates, that's something you've got to be cautious about if you're a sports person on social. I uh, I had been a BBC journalist for 15 years, so I was a um, reporter producer in the BBC newsroom. Um, and I'd been doing that for a long time. And, and the thing with news is it's fantastically exciting. It's absolutely brilliant to be in a newsroom. That adrenaline rush with live TV is wonderful. But news is news, and it's often really bad news. And it's always the same kind of news. There's another disaster or something awful or another election or whatever. And I, after 15 years, I thought, I need to do something new. And this Twitter thing looks quite interesting. Um, and a friend of mine said, another journalist said to me, um, oh, there's some interesting people on Twitter. And I thought, well, that's enough to get me hooked. Um, so being very curious, I started looking at it. And I thought, well, there's a future in this. So I left the Beeb and um, set myself up as a social media trainer, consultant. Um, so taught myself how to do it. And then within two months, my old boss at the Beeb said, oh, Sue, you know this Twitter thing. Can you come back and do some training and take it into the newsroom? So I went back to the newsroom and I had a Twitter course at the BBC and um, and then I, every Tuesday I would go into the newsroom and have my Twitter Tuesday lunches and get people to figure out how it, you know, come and listen and figure out how it worked. And from then on, I, I trained thousands of journalists. Um, so I did not just Twitter training, but all sorts of social media training for the BBC and then for a whole bunch of other journalists and media organizations and foreign office or Bank of England or, you know, Olympic Association, Football Association, all sorts of different people. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years. So um, social media has really changed in a lot a long, you know, so many ways since I started. But yeah, so I've always worked in communications in one way or another. Um, and that's kind of because I love human behavior. My passion is psychology. So, you know, following people's behaviors online and the way they communicate is what really, you know, gets me going. I think initially, <laughs> definitely the journalists were like, well, what's this rubbish? We don't need this. There was a lot of skepticism. But I think um, actually the moment that really helped me with the training courses was the moment the, um, uh, the Hudson River plane crash happened because that incredible photo um, of the plane on the water and people getting out of it, that was around the world before the helicopter from the news organization uh, had even found the plane. Um, so that kind of speed, suddenly people came up to me and going, hey, Sue, this Twitter thing's really 
really interesting. Can you tell me about it? I, I still think uh, a lot of journalists don't know how to search it properly. And, um, and because everything's changing so fast, one of the issues for most, for everybody, is time. You know, social media is a massive time vampire. Uh, also, sadly, it's absolutely stuffed full of hate speech and trolls and, and terrible things like that. Um, but at the same time, it, it is a force for good. It is an amazing way of getting your message across and being heard. Uh, it certainly connected me with people I never would have had anything, you know, wouldn't have met them before. It's given me work. It's it's kept me going for the last 10 years. Uh, and it, I love the way it changes all the time. So you can never be bored with social media. I think there's we have a, we're now seeing a pendulum swing. So initially, everyone rushed to use it, um, the public, not necessarily the journalists. And then, and everything was open and, and, you know, everyone was using it like crazy. And now it's much more private and there's been a swing back to the closed networks, you know, the WhatsApp and Telegram and things like that because of the, you know, the problems of you know, privacy and um, trolling. People don't want that. Increasingly, I'm hearing of people shutting down their Facebook accounts or even if they're not shutting them down, they're using them less frequently and perhaps have deleted the app from their phone. So I think there is a, a change. And there's definitely, you know, each social network comes and goes and, you know, ebbs and flows like everything else. So don't put all your eggs in one basket, I think. And do stay curious. You know, you've got to keep looking around and looking at the way people are behaving and think, you know, why are they using this? All the behavior. Why are people using social media? Why are they sharing? Don't just stuff something up on social because you can. You know, think about what's what's in it for somebody else, not what's in it for you. It's always the other person you need to think about. I think that's where people go wrong. They just think of it as a marketing tool or um, I don't know, something just to get their message out there rather than how can you be of use to somebody else. Your efforts on social media entirely depend who, who you're aiming at. And I would say that obviously if it's for work purposes, you need a LinkedIn account um, just to be seen because that's where people go. And it also comes up quite highly in a search. If you go and search for somebody's name on Google, LinkedIn profiles pop up. Um, ahead of many other things so make sure your LinkedIn profile is looking good if you want to do sort of thought leadership blogging type things LinkedIn would also be good uh, Twitter is brilliant for finding out information so don't just use it as a platform for you know out you know broadcasting your your thoughts or broadcasting retweets or whatever use it as a listening platform and you'll find conversations going on all over the place and what people are talking about is really good it depends what you want to get out of social media as opposed you know and where you want to be. A lot of people are using Instagram purely for personal purposes and they've got you know, a closed profile. What you do need more than anything else is a clear strategy about why you're on these places. How much time can you spend doing it? Who are you aiming at? What do you want to get out of it? Um, what can you offer? So think really clearly about a strategy before you start using them. And then um, hopefully it'll be better for you. But if you just go and spread yourself too thinly, uh, I, I, you know, that's pointless. You know, I, I can't see any point in me being on Snapchat. I'm there purely to show people uh, how it works. But I haven't got time for that sort of stuff. and I'm far too old. But, you know, so so the other places. I also don't use um, YouTube, but that's brilliant for other people. So think about what you want to get out of it and what you can put into it, more importantly. How are you going to be of use to other people? When I left university, um, there wasn't really so much choice around of what you did. And because I did psychology uh, and wasn't going to go into psychology, kind of advertising was the first option. And that's what I did first up. And then shortly afterwards, I thought, oh, um, PR looks quite good. I worked in PR for three months and got fired. 
And so I bought PR Made Simple and I um, borrowed a corner of a friend's office and got a phone and plugged it in. In those days, you had to plug your phone in, um, in a landline. And I sat in a corner and I called myself a PR consultant. And within about three weeks, I got my first client. And he said, uh, can I come and meet with you at your office? And I said, no, no, I'll come, I'll come to you, because I didn't even have a desk. Um, so I had a desk and a typewriter, that shows how old I am. Um, and so I did that, ran my NPR business, I think, for eight years, until somebody came up to me and said, have you ever thought about getting into television? And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So I joined the BBC. And then that that was brilliant. So being a, a you know journalist in the newsroom is always exciting. You can't get bored in news, I don't think. You get bored with the hours, they're horrendous, but you can't get bored with the stories because they're always changing. So I think, and also storytelling, you know, finding people's stories and, um, you know, putting stories out there about people. I loved that. I absolutely loved it. I loved meeting people. Um, I did a lot of sort of entertainment news towards the end of my time at the Beeb. Um, so, you know, you get to meet sort of really famous celebrities and go to premieres and stuff like that. And that's quite good fun. Um, I mean, it's obviously not, it's not brain surgery, but it's, it's quite good fun. Uh, also interesting to see how that works behind the scenes. So it's always about people. That's what I find fascinating about what I've done, communication and, and people and being a freelance. That was the other thing. So as I started in my career, I was freelance. Then I worked at the BBC for 15 years and now I've had another 10 years on my own. So I've, most of my career has been as a freelance and that is very much a sort of feast or famine. So if you like that kind of risk and you like that, flexibility. And I took three weeks off over Christmas because I can. But the downside is you don't get paid when you don't work and you don't get paid if you get sick. So um, I figured that, you know, you just work out that you can work X number of weeks a year and then the other ones you don't get any money, but you might as well enjoy yourself. There was a film back in oh, ages ago, 2003, I think, called Calendar Girls, which um, basically was a bunch of lovely ladies from a women's institute who wanted to raise money um, uh, for a cancer charity because one of them's husband had died. Anyway, they decided to do a calendar where they took their clothes off. And I went to do um, the premiere and I was so inspired by the film. I said to my cameraman, I'm going to take my kit off and do a naked piece to camera. Um, and then I rang the office and I said, hey, guess what, guys? I'm going to do a naked piece to camera. The PR people said, oh, wow, nobody's thought of that. But I stood on the table at the premiere behind a hedge and I took my top down and I said to my cameraman, can you see my boobs? And he said, no, move to the left a bit. So I did my piece. I think I basically said something like, um, uh, you've got to take your hat off to the assembled cast, although you might find yourself taking everything else off as well. Sue Llewellyn, BBC News in London's West End. And it was great, the reaction I got when the piece went out. And it certainly got me noticed. So the reason I did it, I also did a safety piece in case they found it offensive. It wasn't offensive. Um, but the reason I did it was I think now and again in life, you have to take a calculated risk. And that was mine. And I thought it was something that got me noticed. It was something I thought was inspirational and funny. And um, it didn't defend anybody. So if that's my, the highlight of my broadcasting career, I'm very proud of it. Well, I've never, ever believed that I couldn't do something because I was a woman, ever. I've always thought I could do at least what men can do, and if not better. And obviously having babies things I can do something I can't do but I've never ever been held back by the belief that I'm a woman and I can't do something um, or that I would allow anybody to talk down to me because I was a woman you know I've always been well known for expressing an opinion and and not just taking it because I have to or 
being told what to do by somebody. Uh, I don't think that you should ever feel um, that you can't, you know, express how you feel or think something's uncomfortable. So I just thought, you know, why not? Nothing has ever held me back. Um, and I think, you know, certainly as I've got older, that's probably become more entrenched and I've become more more opinionated, but in a nicer way. <laughs> um, you know, I try to be polite now, perhaps, whereas maybe before I might be slightly more assertive in saying I'm not going to do this because that's, that's shit and I don't agree with it. Um, but now I'm, you know, more diplomatic, I think. I've learned that as I've got older. But the one thing I would say now is people like me are pretty much invisible now. So if you think it's hard being a woman, just wait till you get to be a woman over 50. Then you are utterly invisible. We don't exist in the media, or very, very few of us do. Um, and that is shocking and needs to change. And I'm certainly doing a lot more standing up and talking at conferences about how women need to stand up and be counted, and we need more women being represented, and not just young women. That's great for young women, but what about us oldies? You know, we need we need to be represented too. We're not dead yet. So that, that's one thing I'm going to do this year, I think, is make sure that the older women get a voice because uh, we've been too quiet for too long. And we are not represented on TV anymore. Uh, you see very few. On Twitter, I find fantastic older women, really feisty, thoughtful, opinionated, um, you know, passionate, talented. Uh, and this is all wasted when you think that they aren't seen so much in the workplace or in the media. Uh, and, you know, somebody like Moira Stewart, who's absolutely brilliant. I love Moira. I used to work with her on Breakfast ages ago. She's fantastic. Um, you know, why isn't she still on TV? I know she's on, on radio, but you know, I think that there's an obsession with youth, an absolute obsession with youth, in this, particularly in this country, and an obsession with looking young. Uh, when you go to Scandinavia, there are posters with women with wrinkles on. It's fantastic. You know, <laughs> absolutely fantastic to see people who look like my age. And also in the workplace, in the media, there are older women. I very, very, very rarely see anybody in the media of my age. Very rarely. And I think it's a disgrace. I think it's very, very peculiar. You know, as a man, you can look like a wedding cake left out in the rain. But as a woman, you've got to be immaculate. Um, you know, you've really got to look absolutely, you know, you've got to be slim. You've got to be young. You can't have any wrinkles. You can't have any gray hair. None of that stuff. You know, youth is an obsession. Why can't you have an older woman with all the experience and the knowledge and the, you know, everything else that goes with it? Why can't you be there with a the younger man? What's wrong with that? Uh, what's wrong with being two women on the screen, a younger one and an older one? I just think that there need to be more older women visible in the media and also at top management levels. There's not many. It's really hard. I know it's really hard. Working in the media as a woman, and particularly if you've got children, is bloody hard um, because the the time, the hours, it's really hard. And there are quite often some very significant sacrifices that have to be made to get to the top of the tree. I think that's why a lot of them have disappeared. They may be, you know, whatever happens, you end up having to look after the kids. Um, so it's generally a woman's job. I know this is very controversial, but it's always true. You know, kind of kids are sick. OK, well, mummy, mummy, mummy. Um and that's a tricky thing. So you have to be, there's no such thing as having it all. You really isn't. I think we've been sold a, a pop on that one. There isn't. And you, you cannot have it all. Um, something has to give somewhere. And I think it's really important that you find balance and balance uh, in everything. Balance also in age on screen. I honestly also think a lot of men have no idea what it was like. 
um, you know, genuinely seen friends who are very shocked saying, God, do you really, do you really think like that when you walk down the street at night or, you know, if you walk into a, an office or somebody's been, I don't know, making inappropriate comments, they didn't realize what some men behave like. Um, it's not all men, it's some men. So I think that social media has had a huge impact on that. I also think that it's had a huge impact on, on women in terms of what your talents are and what you can do for work. Uh, certainly Instagram, I've seen some incredibly talented photographers and artists and people who do amazingly creative things who have made a career because of social media. Um, you know, they've built a profile, they've got a following, and that's a job. So I think it's had, you know, a significant liberating effect in many ways. It's also, you know, there was obviously a downside, but um, it's certainly been a, um, empowering, I think, for women, and it's going to continue to, to get more so, I think. If, if I'm talking to freelancers, I would say follow your heart and do what you really enjoy doing and just you know, think what, what's you, most authentically you, that you really like. And then you're going to get a, a job and you'll get work doing that. Um, don't do things if you ever feel uncomfortable. Definitely. I've often turned down work if I think it's um, ethically wrong or it doesn't agree with my principles. So, you know, I refuse to go and do some work in Saudi Arabia just because I think that's a really bad place for women so you know follow your heart on those things too don't compromise and always believe that something good will come around the corner because uh, there will be you know upsides and downsides for everything as a freelance and um learn how to manage your money that's another one <laughs> yeah budget your time carefully one thing i haven't done that i think is one of my new year's resolutions this year is to treat myself like a client um so i'm going to start doing that more uh, you know, following my own advice. I'm rubbish. I haven't even got a website. Um, if somebody wants to design me one, that would be lovely. But I haven't even got a website and I'm useless at self-promotion. So uh, that's another thing I've got to do properly. I think that's a, a singularly female trait, really. We're not very good at putting ourselves out there. So I'm going to try that this year too. One of the things I'm doing this year is trying to um, do kind of spokespeople development. Um, I've got a couple of jobs on actually doing spokesperson development things so it's empowering um and actually it's not just women but obviously my passion is the women's side of it you know getting people to be uh, more effective communicators online and in person and to feel more confident and as somebody personally i it was only a few years ago that i couldn't speak in public it's okay you know speaking to camera because that's not an audience i mean it is an audience but it's a removed one but even in a meeting i would shake and stammer so i couldn't possibly have got on stage so I've taught my way out of that, um, and I went to a course to learn how to get over nerves. And I think if I can do that, anybody can. So I want to share that, try and get others to feel as though they can. You know, 15 years in the newsroom, ringing people up, trying to persuade them to come on television, and then coaching them before they went on. There's very few people who can't do it, actually, very few. Um, actually, I, I lied to a vicar once, which is a terrible thing. But um, I had to do an interview with a vicar. Um, and actually, we went round to his place, um, in, uh, a vicar in London, and every time we switched the camera on, the poor man went to pieces. He just couldn't do it. He completely fell apart. He was stammering. He just got all his words muddled up, and it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I just kept switching the camera off and, okay, have another go, have another go. And then I nodded to the camera, and this was in the days when there were cameramen. How you do it yourself? Notice I said cameraman back then, camera person. And also, there used to be a sound person as well. 
So, yeah, big bulky thing and with a red light on it. And I said to the cameraman, I gave him a wink and just said, yeah, we're going to turn the camera off now. Wink. And, and I said to the, they could just have a chat with me like you're talking to a friend. And then I said, done it. We've got it. That's exactly the answer. And he said, oh, I don't think I'll be able to do that when you turn the camera on. I said, I'm really sorry. I may burn in hell for lying to you, but I, the camera was rolling the whole time. I'm really sorry. And he said, oh, thank God for that. I couldn't have done it otherwise. So most people can do it. Um, they just need help. Uh, and that's kind of what I'd like to do next. Yeah, absolutely. No audience is out to get you. They just want, unless you're a politician, but they're not out to get you. They want you to do well. They can't bear it if you're if you're awkward or you're, you know, it's awkward for you. So they are rooting for you. Um, and also the audience don't know how you feel. That was the really important thing for me when I did this course. Um, and I couldn't see, when I when I was filmed, I couldn't see how scared I felt. And that's massively empowering because you think, I know I'm a jelly and my palms are sweating and my knees are knocking and my heart's about to jump out of my mouth, but I can't see that on the film. You can hear it catch in your voice, but you know I couldn't see it. So I thought, okay, I can now act my way out of this. I can perform and think this is just a performance like acting. I used to love acting. Um, so you know, I can do that and, and get through the speeches that way. Tomorrow, I'm going back to the BBC to do a, some crowd tangle training. Well, you don't have access as a freelance. You don't have access to a lot of things as a freelance. That's actually one of the downsides of being a freelance. Is, and I, don't, I think a lot of journalists don't really realise how lucky they are with the tools they have access to. And you know, as a freelance, you suddenly find yourself out, out there and, oh, and there's no budget for setting up some of these things. And there's something like social flow, scheduling your posts. It's like, oh, okay, well, I can't do that now because that's far too expensive for a freelance. Uh, so there's loads and loads of tools that I think journalists have that they don't realise how good they are and how lucky they are. I do think a lot of journalists are quite complacent and still doing their jobs in the ways they've always done them. Um, there's so many people, so many people over the years have come to me and said, I want to be on TV. I want to be a journalist. I want to be on TV. Set, sorry about my dog. Set yourself up on a YouTube channel and get noticed. Make some content yourself. Don't just expect somebody to give you a job. Uh, but they, you know, I don't know what's going on. Sorry, my dog's probably saying, hey, I'm bored. Take me out. So thanks to Sue Llewellyn for guesting on this podcast. What she's far too kind to tell you is that I think I've recorded her about three times before we managed to get this episode together. When I say we, I mean before I managed to get this episode together because I ruined the recording twice but sue was very kind and um, agreed to be recorded as many times as it would take to get a podcast episode together and i'm glad to say sue i finally did it i hope you're proud <laughs> well that's it for another episode of freelance pod if you enjoyed what we talked about in this episode please do get involved on social you can find freelance pod on instagram as at freelance pod on twitter is at freelance underscore pod underscore there's a Facebook group called Freelance Pod, and you can also sign up for the newsletter. The URL is in the show notes. Don't forget that the success of this podcast relies on you, the listeners. If you do enjoy it, please do rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes. This means that other listeners will find out that this podcast exists and they'll come and join us too. That's it for now. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.